0: See, Father, our prayer here this evening is indeed that, that in light of all that you have done for us, as we've just sung about in every song, that you would change our hearts in such a way, transform us in such a way that we really would desire to live life in a way that honors you. And so, Father, one of the means by which you create that transformation is through the hearing of your word, and so. As we hear your word now and and engage with it, I pray that your spirit would take it and uh, just bring new life again and refreshment to the hearts of those you've brought to hear this word tonight. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, welcome to Epiphany. And um, tonight we are looking at basically a continuation of the text that we looked at last week. We looked at uh, a text out of Matthew chapter 21 in which Jesus basically uh, ended the passage talking about or making a comparison between two sons. And one son was uh, initially started off disobedient to his father in the parable, but then eventually changed his mind and went and did what his father asked him. But the other son said that he was gonna do all that the father wanted him to do, but then didn't do any of it. And Jesus asked the question, who did the right thing and of course the obvious answer is well the one that at least eventually changed his mind and went out and worked in the field and jesus uses that and says you're like the son he's talking to these religious leaders that are quite proud of you know how good they are and he says you're like the son that promised you were going to do all the things and didn't actually do anything and so it's it's pretty harsh with this group of legalists and religious leaders And tonight he's going to continue, uh, well, he's going to continue bringing the heat. Uh, So with that said, um, we'll look at Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Here's what it says. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. You may have noticed all the passages tonight beforehand had vineyard stuff in them. That was not accidental. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, quite obviously, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables I love this line they perceived that he was speaking about them you think? And although they were seeking to arrest him they feared the crowds because they held him Be a prophet. End of reading. Uh, If you read the Psalms at all, you will notice from time to time, fairly frequently, there's a pretty regular lament coming from the saints who have written the Psalms that sound something like this O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult. That's actually a direct quote from a psalm. Or to put that in question form, the, the question basically is, Lord, why do the wicked seem to prosper? You ever found yourself having that question? Why does it seem like the bad guys get away with it I'm pretty sure at some point or another all of us have probably had that question at least pass through our mind and based on who we think quote the wicked are that's a really fraught term right wicked uh We can't help but ask that question from time to time. I mean, uh, you know, we see people like tyrants that rule over their nations with iron fists and starve their population. We see, you know, things like the Uyghur population being uh, hauled off by the government in China to concentration camps, and, uh, you know, over a million of them are being placed into something like that, And, and it seems like those in power will not really face anything for their... Horrible atrocities. And we're tempted to say, like, how long? It's not just politicians out there. We see it in our own politicians. We see it at work. I mean, we see people that get away with cutting corners and they never seem to get caught. I mean, you know, we've, we've come across this stuff. How long shall the wicked exult? The wicked get away with it and prosper, or do they? That's the question I want to deal with tonight. How does God deal with the wicked? Because that's what these tenants in our parable are referred to as, the wicked. Well, first of all, God patiently sends representatives to this group of wicked tenants. Now, I should clarify before I go any further, it's important to point out a couple of details about the parable just so we're all on the same page here. Um, everything in it is originally addressed to the people of Israel and specifically the corrupt uh, religious establishment in Judah or Jerusalem. Therefore, just about every character represents something or someone in Israel's history. So when you hear the master, of course, you're hearing of God. Uh, the vineyard is Israel or the broader people of God. The wicked tenants are Israel's leadership, and the servants that the master sends to get the fruit are the prophets that we see all throughout the Old Testament, and of course the son is the son, Jesus himself. So let's see, the first way that God handles the wicked, he is the master in this parable, verse 34, when the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. This would have been such an expected and common practice, of course. It's his field. What any tenant from that would naturally do is give to the owner's servants what they are requesting. They would naturally heed the word of the owner's representatives. But not these tenants. It is with some degree of shock, no doubt, that Jesus' hearers are told that. One after another, they beat, kill, and stone the representatives, the owner sensitive. to them. It really is just sort of an outrageous display of greed and violence and lawlessness. And so if this were any ordinary master or owner of a vineyard at that time, one would expect to read that the master of the land naturally came down upon those tenants with great wrath and furious anger for killing his workers but instead we read this incomprehensible statement again he sent other servants he kept on sending more and they did the same to them i mean if there's a definition of wicked they seem to be they seem to fit the profile I mean, they just keep beating and just keep killing innocent people sent by the master. And yet this is the picture of what Israel did to the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. Time after time after time, God sends, God raises up somebody to speak to the people, to warn the corrupt religious establishment, hey, you're doing it all wrong, you're loading people's backs up with all sorts of rules that they can't do, and you're not even following them yourself, you need to stop this, and the prophet summarily is greeted with taunts, rejection, and oftentimes guilt. It happens all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah, look at Isaiah, look at Ezekiel, you name it. They all face persecution and difficulty. And yet, like the master in our story, God is so patient. So patient with them. I mean, we're talking about thousands of years worth of time in which God sends these representatives over and over again only to see them abused and killed. Now listen, I mean, you know I have kids. And if I tell them to do something and they disregard what I tell them to do, my patience runs out pretty quickly. Like, I'm not just saying they ignore because they're watching TV. Like, that happens on a, you know, hourly basis or whatever. You know, that, that's normal. But I'm saying, looking at me after I've told them what to do, I'm being like, no. You know, just as disrespectful as possible. It doesn't take much of that before I'm going to react. God deals with this for thousands of years. And yet he continues to send patiently more representatives. And so it's natural when you hear that, when you hear of how God doesn't bring justice upon these people after they're doing this evil over and over and over again, for some to say, how long are you going to let them get away with it? How long are you going to let the wicked prosper? Nevertheless, his patience goes deeper still because we don't just see God patiently sending mere representatives or workers. The master goes on to send his son. This is Insane in any real scenario. But the master thinks, surely they'll respect my son. Surely they'll know not to lay a finger on him. Well, of course that's not what what happens. Indeed, when Jesus came, Immediately the tenants of the house of Israel, the leadership, wanted to do anything they could to get rid of them. So in Matthew 23, verse 37, we hear Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, this city that had become filled with religious legalism and corruption, and he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often how often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Why does God send the representatives? It's really not even about the fruit. It's about wanting to gather people as a hen gathers chicks under her wings, wanting to protect them and provide for them. But they were not willing. And the reasoning is odd. They they think to themselves, when they find out the son's there, well, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we'll have his inheritance. Somehow these tenants thought that if they just got rid of the son, that somehow they would just take over the son's land, that they'd be able to take over ownership of it, as if the owner was going to let it happen. And yet there's an insight here into these wicked people's mindset when it comes to Jesus, to the Son. Why do they kill the Son? Because they want the Son's stuff, but they don't want Him. They want the gifts, but not the giver. This is, unfortunately, all too descriptive of me. On any given day, I am happy to take for granted the breath in my lungs, the beat of my heart, the food that I eat, the friendships that I have, the shelter above me, and the list could go on on. And on and on. Where am I told those things come from? Well, they come ultimately from the hand of God. And yet it's all too easy for me to go about my day not thinking about it hardly at all. that's what these guys were doing but on blast. they wanted the benefits that God could give them they didn't want God and so you know you say how long oh Lord when are you going to do something about the wicked and so finally finally the master does he brings it he does finally he brings judgment Now let me ask you a question, Uh, based on the, the reality that this is picturing thousands of years of workers being killed and beaten, that his son even was beaten. If this was a real owner of a vineyard and he had all of this happen to him, would anybody, would anyone in their right mind think he was unreasonable for finally punishing them? For finally saying, enough is enough? No. And that is clearly shown through the religious leader's response, right? I mean, they're not quite picking up yet that this story is about them, or at least if they are, they seem to be a little dense about it, because when they hear it, what do they say with great consternation, great condemnation in their voice, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruits in their seasons. Religious leaders can't escape the logic of what Jesus is saying, not realizing that in condemning these tenants, they are really condemning themselves. So Jesus quotes to the scripture from the Old Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In other words, he's saying judgment is coming. The stone has arrived. Jesus is the stone in this scenario. And it's going to tumble over all of their their rules and regulations and their legalisms. It's always easy. It's always easy to point out the wrong in others. It's always easy to point out the unjust thing when someone else is doing it. These Pharisees had a really easy time of doing that in this story. Reminds me of another time in the Scriptures where that happens. It reminds me of David when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. David, as king, really has a terrible, terrible slip-up. Even though he is a follower of God, even though he's been called a man after God's own heart, David sees a woman bathing on her roof, something that was not uncommon back then, and he's filled with lust for her. And as king, he can basically have whatever he commands his soldiers to bring him. And he says, looking at her as purely an object I want to, I want her. He wants to sleep with her. And Bathsheba can't, at that time, she has no rights, she has no power. Unfortunately, women were at the complete mercy of men most of the time, and multiply that by a thousand when it comes to the king. And the king demands your presence there, and you go. And he does indeed sleep with her. Even though she's a married woman, and he knows it, and even though she happens to be married to a man that David knows is currently fighting a battle for him on the nation's behalf. David is so consumed with lust for her that he takes her anyway, and then eventually, through a series of schemes, purposely has her husband sent out to battle in a very dangerous spot, and he is murdered. And it seems... That David is going to get away with it scot free. Who, after all, can call a king to account? Who has the guts to dare speak something against the king? Well, a prophet did. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, Instead of, hey, sinner, you did this and you did that. He doesn't come that way. He comes more shrewdly. He comes wisely. Well, he comes with a little bit of a parable himself, just like Jesus did here. He says this. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You can clearly see the injustice in what he's done. This man who has all these flocks takes this man's one little lamb, slaughters it, and prepares it for his guests so that he doesn't have to lose one of his many thousands. And what happens when David hears this story? David's anger is greatly kindled, we're told. And he says to the prophet Nathan, as the Lord lives, in other words, I swear to you, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Oh, the righteous indignation David had toward, quote, the wicked. Oh, the righteous indignation that can rise up in us towards the wicked. How long, oh Lord, how long? Are you going to let all of them out there Get away with it. Help them. And it's right then when we see wickedness for all of its heinousness. And all we want is for justice to fall down on the evildoers. Right then is when Nathan comes to David and frankly comes to us and says, you are the man. That's when we begin to see who, quote, the wicked, really are. You see, we read before us in the parable today, looking at the wickedness of the tenants, looking for justice, not really realizing the whole time that in it we are being also forced to look at ourselves. So when you come to the Lord pleading with Him to do something about all those bad people out there it wouldn't do you bad to take a moment to look in the mirror too. Because we too can just as easily reject the messengers of God time and time again. It is our sin just as much as theirs that led to the crucifixion of the Son. Who really deserves judgment? I do. But who is the one who has taken the judgment that I, the wicked, deserve? He is. And now, when we see life through that perspective, we might not be so quick to call out for justice against the the wicked. But now that it is us sitting in the dock, we might just be more prone to crying out to the master of the vineyard for mercy. And the good news of the scriptures is that his reply every single time, no matter how much wickedness we may have committed, to those who call out for mercy, the answer every single time is, you are forgiven, you are restored, you are my child, come, I long to gather you as a hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, that is the profound message of the scriptures that though God has every right to come down on us with the hammer of His justice, He instead chooses patiently to pursue us over and over and over again that we might repent and believe and be restored to complete fellowship with Him. And for that we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would indeed before we're prone to getting up on our high horse and looking at all of them out there for all the bad that they do and all the wrong that they do. It's true that you would help us, Father, first. Help us to acknowledge our own sin. To not be the one to cast the first stone. But to be the one, instead of going out to the world and pointing out the specks in their eyes, pulling out the log in our own. Because it's only then when, when we see our need for mercy and then we become people that work on behalf of mercy for others and want them to experience it too. This is what your Son taught us. This is what we hear in your Word. And that is why we pray the words that He gave us Thank mm-hmm. you.